Welcome back to our three-part series on trying to understand how have health policies been recalibrated or perhaps need to be recalibrated as an outcome of the COVID-19 pandemic and a very interesting uh, discussion to follow, which is really, have we been looking at criteria of evaluation and solution finding in uh, policy frameworks that are now in dire need of change? Um, as we all know, the pressures that have been made on health systems and services, uh, the outlook and dependency on efficacy, clinical evidence, etc., can really only carry so much weight of today's public health burden. And as we've experienced and are beginning to see as this dust settles, particular aspects of disease prevention, vaccinations, uh, the areas of preventable chronic disease, uh, aging and degenerative comorbidities are all issues that are soon going to be staring at policymakers and policy implementation, particularly right in the face. Um, and that's what really this three-part episode is going to be looking at. So with that, welcome to episode two. Uh, we've got quite an interesting title for this episode. Uh, it's called uh, Grabbing the HPV Bull by the Horns. And to briefly explain that, the intention in our first episode was to try and contextualize the issues that we are faced with today, the role or the gap between scientific credibility and health behaviors. Uh, for those who listened in uh, for our first episode would have heard uh, a variety of uh, thoughts and directions and potential uh, priorities that were outlined. So uh, I'd encourage folks to have a listen to that. Um, and as we get into this particular episode, I'm so, so pleased uh, to have with us uh, Professor Dicky Pang and Prof Wu is making a, a repeat, uh, 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 I guess, uh, presence here for us. We're so glad to have you both. Before I go any further, it would be absolutely lovely for our listeners to uh, really hear more about yourselves. Uh, I think that's something which will add a great deal of complexion to our discussion. Uh, Prof Wu, may I start with you first? Thank you very much. Thank you, Rohit. Nice meeting you, Prof Tiki. We come from the same, uh, we have the same university background, which is University of Malaya. Um, I'm a gynecological oncologist, a doctor that looks after women with cervical cancer, really at the point where they present with disease. And the whole idea of um, prevention and talking about eliminating a, a disease has made me think and dwell more about how we can move the interventions from treatment to prevention. And increasingly, as a doctor who works in a hospital in a tertiary setting, I'm starting to question whether the interventions should be in a hospital or earlier on in prevention. I think HPV is just one of those diseases or infections that we can talk about as an example, because cervical cancer, as we alluded to earlier on now, is the first cancer in the history of mankind that we can talk about elimination in our lifetime. The tools for elimination is there, and now we have the difficult job of figuring out how to apply these tools whether it's policy, acceptability, accessibility, now that's critical. And I think that whatever lessons we learn about here, we may be able to translate it to other disease processes. Thank you. Thank you for that. I should also mention uh, Prof Wu has a, uh, an NGO that actually proves 
that you can actually start to make a difference uh, by the name of Rose. And we'll talk a bit more about that as we uh, get into this, uh, into this dialogue. Uh, Prof Tiki. Yes, just, just uh, briefly. Um, I used to be a scientist in, in my past life. My background is actually in microbiology and immunology. Uh, as uh, Yin Ling mentioned, I joined the University of Malaya back in 1977 in the Department of Medical Microbiology, where I was yeah, teaching medical students, um, nurses, dental students, as well as running diagnostic uh, microbiology uh, tests for the university hospital. Um, I was very interested in research, uh, particularly in, in dengue and in typhoid fever, among other things. Uh, and then in, as a result of my research in 1999, I moved to the World Health Organization in Geneva in Switzerland. Uh, I was director of research policy and cooperation at WHO in Geneva. So let me tell you upfront that I, I'm, I'm in no way an expert on cervical cancer or, or, or HPV vaccine in particular, uh, but perhaps what I bring here is more sort of a, a global health perspective uh, at the level of policy making, uh, driven of course, by evidence and, and research. Uh, basically that's what I did for the uh, 13 years at WHO. And I retired in 2012 and persuaded to uh, continue working uh, half, half time actually uh, at the National University of Singapore. Uh, I was at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, interestingly not dealing so much with medical and health graduates, but uh, sort of uh, future civil servants from all sectors of government uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, increasing their awareness that health is actually in all uh, policies. And uh, last year, I moved back to the School of Medicine uh, with, the, with the task of sort of broadening the blinkered view that medical students tend to have, especially in Singapore. Okay, so I hope that I will complement um, Yinling's uh, in-depth knowledge about the technical aspects of HPV and cervical cancer, and hopefully we can complement each other in terms of what we say in the next 40 minutes or so. Thanks, Rohit. Thank you. Thanks so much. And, and I think that's exactly uh, this equilibrium that uh, we've been looking forward to in this discussion, and I'm sure our listeners, a lot of whom also make up uh, graduate students and those who are beginning their careers to look at how the worlds of medicine and global health uh, and uh, are, are coming together. So let's let's begin. Um, I think as part of uh, bringing, I guess, continuity from our first episode, terms such as lack of access, uh, disruptions in clear, consistent uh, awareness programs, gaps in screening diagnosis, have begun to create uh, this perception, real or not, that uh, policies and infrastructures and services are really having to play catch up. Um, so Profu, maybe I can sort of ask you this first question to sort of make this connection and we'll get deeper into this uh, conversation that, do you think that with the way things are looking, policy frameworks of the future, as we're now beginning to move into this new uh, space, will be based entirely again on the clinical and scientific data alone or is there now this look to bring equilibrium through sound behavioral health sciences? Thank you, Rohit. I have to say I'm very humbled to be in the presence of uh, Prof Tiki and I'm sure that I will learn from him. From my observation and, and, and coming to learn more about global health, I think we really need to transform healthcare. 
if you look at, you know, we learn from history. If you look at the history of the first hospital that was built in Vienna in 1700s, you know, the framework of building a building with wards for different um, diseases and how medical education was then built to fit the architecture of how hospital was built. Then you start having a framework of uh, healthcare that's also built around hospitals, specialization. And that has sort of, you know, come this far and we still think about healthcare in terms of hospitals and doctors and medication. Now, if we were to really put health as a priority, we need to move away from hospitals because that's where we look after sick people where we deal with illnesses. And so this framework of prevention needs to move away from how we think about healthcare. How do communities adopt health? And that's why when, when I put it in the, when I think about cervical screening, I see the same thing. Screening is done in hospitals with cold instruments by specialists. It doesn't need to be so. It needs to be adopted in a community as part of a lifestyle that, you know, I will uphold my health. It's not a scary uh, experience. So whether it's policy or behavior or behavioral change, I feel very strongly that whatever interventions we, we take, we have to disrupt the idea of healthcare being in hospitals. That's a, that's a great place to start because yesterday, uh, Prof. Tiki talked about the six pillars of global health. And I think it touches upon, Prof., what you just said, that if the legacy has been that I must go to this structure for my uh, cure, for my well-being, then how will we ever try and bring this almost spontaneous prevention aspect, just as it is within our homes, within our communities, yet my health has to be in this one little separate place of illness and sickness. Uh, Prof. Tiki, how would you react to that in the context of those pillars, which I think were great sort of frameworks or parameters to perhaps build off that? Yeah, uh, thanks, Rohit. Uh, what I mentioned were um, six pillars, or I think the better term is building blocks, uh, not so much of global health, but of health system uh, in, 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 in countries. Uh, that is, you know, the health workforce, the supply of medicines, the delivery of services, information systems, and importantly, leadership and governance. But I think I, I in the context of what Yinling uh, just said, I couldn't agree more with her. And what I would like to mention here, perhaps on, on a sort of a global level, I think most of our listeners have heard of the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, that ended in 2015. And that in 2016 was replaced with something called the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, okay? And SDG3 in particular is focused on improving health and well-being. So it goes beyond just the absence of disease. And it goes to the heart of what Yingling was saying, and if you look carefully at SDG3, regardless of the focus of, say, communicable disease, non-communicable disease, violence and injuries, 
maternal health, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The underlying foundation of that is universal healthcare, mm -hmm. and the focus of universal healthcare is prevention. The focus is not hospital with fancy equipment, but primary care facilities. Okay, shifting it as you said to the level of communities. Okay, so there is a global compact. Every country, I believe, has that responsibility to provide universal healthcare. And Indonesia has been struggling with it because it's expensive, obviously, you know. And they found out that if people think universal healthcare is giving coverage for heart transplants and expensive cancer medication, they're wrong. The only way forward is to focus on primary care, on immunization, on bed nets for malaria, on nutritional supplement, on promoting breastfeeding, that sort of stuff. And if you want a good example of a country that's gone that path, that's Thailand, where in the last 10, 15 years, they've shifted the way they've spent their budget. Instead of 70% in urban areas, in tertiary, fancy hospitals, it's now 70%. In the urban area, in the rural areas, in primary care clinics. And they have managed to keep what they call the 30 baht policy. Every Thai citizen pays 30 baht to access all kinds of health services. So, yeah, I think just to support what Yingling said, that there is a global compact that is absolutely focused on prevention and primary care rather than treating the disease which once you are, once you have to see Yinling in her clinic, it's too late in many cases, and it's gonna be very expensive for the healthcare system. Correct. It, it, it's almost becoming customers of wellness rather than customers of illness. Now, that sounds like exactly where we need to be headed. Um, there's the question of HPV, and I think this is why we selected HPV as one of the areas that you would expect universal health coverage should be or would be uh, identifying as a priority. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers, particularly in our region, uh, it's in the high uh, percentages for, for affecting those, particularly with, with, uh, with, with less access maybe uh, to awareness programs and so on. And the fact that I think, as uh, Prof. Wu mentioned, it's, a, it's preventative, which is absolutely uh, you know, insane as to why wouldn't this be something which is after over a decade or two, uh, that testing should be made more mandatory is yet still not being adapted or adopted to. So if I may, from the context of what you just said, Prof. Tiki, that the UHC values that are now coming through now and, and possibly hopefully will increase, what, what, what would there be um, or what's holding it back rather that we're yet not seeing that level of uptake in HPV, we're not seeing that either community prioritization, is it, is it financial? Is it, is, it, is it cultural? Are there nuances that we need to be looking beyond perhaps the, uh, the sort of systemic more in terms of behavioral? Uh, Prof, would you, would you like to have a, a go at yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think maybe for the benefit of our listeners, I'll, I'll, just, pay, I'll just put uh, the, the big picture of how cervical cancer can be eliminated just for the benefit of the listeners. So to do that, WHO, the World Health Organization, has set a, a target to be achieved by 2030, which is eight years from now. In that, 70, uh, 90% of our adolescent girls 
should be vaccinated with the HPV vaccine. So 90% of 13-year-old or 15-year-olds. Historically, uh, it was we started off with three doses of vaccine and we, we, we talked about the infrastructure to get a girl back three times within the course of a year. Then um, the signs showed that two doses were sufficient. And now this year, we're starting to see evidence that one dose may be enough. And in fact, the UK has just come up with their, their guidelines. JCVI have just said that, look, with a disruption of COVID, please get at least one dose in the arms of the 15-year-olds. So first strategy, vaccinate 90% of your girls. Second strategy is to ensure that 70% of women are screened with at least with an HPV test at least twice in their lifetimes. So not like the traditional pap smear where you need to have it done every three years. This is an HPV test, PCR test, similar to COVID, but twice in your lifetime. Third, which I think is most important, is that those who are screened positive and who are found to require treatment, 90% of them would be um, would receive the appropriate care. So against that background, we then ask, if this is so effective, why are there some countries still not vaccinating the girls? Um, there's been so many cost-effectiveness studies done in every single type of economic setting to say that it is, it is cost-effective. I think affordability may be one issue for many countries. Many countries just don't have the finances or the budget, or maybe it's not been argued or the value has not been demonstrated. So all these things, I think Prof Tiki will bring, will be able to share. How do we change policy at a country level to make sure vaccines get into the arms of girls? Then we have to deal with the societal or behavior of our parents allowing girls to be vaccinated. So I think I leave that vaccination uh, portion for now, and maybe Prof Tiki can share how he thinks um, different aspects can change policy for HPV vaccines. Mm, I, absolutely, and Prof Tiki, before you before you do that, let me let me contextualize uh, with uh, live examples. So some years back, when I was sort of doing some research around uh, vaccinations uh, for cervical cancer. Um, and having interviews uh, with pediatricians, uh, GPs, uh, the question to me was as simple as, how do I bring up the discussion of uh, uh, sexual activity, genital warts, all that other stuff with parents of a 11 year old? How, how do I, how, how, why, why lay that responsibility on me? I have a practice to run. So the reality in terms of where does this policy, where does this initiation of dialogue begin? Are we providing for enough, uh, I guess, um, in some regards, securities aspects for this conversation to happen in a way that is appreciated? And at the same time, as a parent, uh, to be considering that I went there for a regular checkup for my uh, uh, little girl, and suddenly here I am being told about certain things, how does that counter? So I, I bring that in the context, Prof. Tiki, that as we talk about what some of these preventative policies may be. And HPV sits in that very kind of cusp of, is this really something that's relevant? 
Is this something that's really going to be culturally acceptable? And then who pins this? Who, who puts the bell on this cat to say, how do we get this going? Sorry, I just want to contextualize this, Prof, before we try and articulate what possible uh, policy solutions might be there. No, I think that's very helpful to put it in that context. But let me begin by sort of, you know, repeating something that's been repeated many times. Uh, what happened in the Philippines two years ago when 400 children died of measles because there was a reduction in childhood immunization. And people say, you know, it's a tragedy that 400 children can die from a disease which is totally vaccine preventable. And it's exactly the same analogy with cervical cancer. You know, this is a, a, a deadly disease uh, that uh, is now totally preventable with a vaccine. And to allow that to continue to happen, it's, it's just morally unjustifiable. So I think, you know, people need to understand the scale of that problem. Um, okay, sorry, I digressed a little bit. In terms of why is it so difficult uh, to change sort of policies in countries, you know, and I did a little bit of reading uh, before the podcast. I was actually struck by the level of coverage of HPV vaccine globally. Yingling, uh, collect me if I'm wrong, but it seems globally on average, it's something like less than 20% total global coverage. Pretty high in Europe and in North America, but in Africa and in Asia, dismally low. And in some countries, absolutely, you know, like 10% even. So Correct. what are some of the factors here uh, that makes it so difficult for government to, to include this in, in, in their uh, policies? So I think the first one, I think Yinling already mentioned, uh, that's affordability. And remember in, in many um, low and lower middle income countries, governments are having to deal with limited resources and competing priorities, okay? And it has been made a lot worse because of COVID. So that's, that's one, one factor. The second factor, as, as I know from my WHO days, the expanded program for immunization, the EPI program, it's already very, very crowded. So there is also sort of a logistic um, um, challenge there of introducing yet another vaccine. Okay, and because this vaccine is, is administered parenterally, it does require some level of, of, of technical expertise. You know, it's not like the, pol the old polio vaccine where you just drop things into the, into the mouth. So that's sort of a health workforce uh, uh, limitation. Um, I think the, 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 the third issue, I think is what, what Yinling has already mentioned, and that is, uh, parents' acceptance of the vaccine. Because at the end of the day, the group that you're targeting, adolescent girls, uh, is where you need definitely uh, parents to support that, okay? And I, I, I don't know whether um, I'm a bit out of date here, but I believe there were some safety concerns about HPV vaccine some time ago, okay? And in the context of hesitancy around COVID vaccines, Okay, that's likely to come up to the surface again. You know, uh, HPV causes infertility. That was one of the fake news that, that I heard many, many years before. So obviously uh, safety, parents' acceptance is, is another issue. 
And just if you remember what happened when antiretroviral therapy became available, I think there is a real concern among some parents that giving the girls HPV vaccine will promote promiscuity amongst them when they become sexually active. So there are multiple reasons for that. But um, you know, from, from, from a government perspective, I think that issue of uh, competing priorities is, uh, sorry, competing priorities and affordability is one. Um, let me just finish by saying, I think Yingling sort of highlighted the fact that in terms of the research evidence, okay, it is beyond doubt the benefit and the value of this vaccine. So, you know, as a scientist and Yingling as, as a clinician researcher, you go to a policymaker and all my years at WHO, I, I used to go to, to say the Minister of Health or the DG and say, hey, look at the evidence. What are you waiting for? The reality is evidence and research is not the only thing that they have to consider when they're making these decisions. But let's not get into that because I teach a whole module on how policymakers sometimes, it's not that they don't want to see the evidence. Let's face it, no policymaker wants to make bad policy, but evidence is only one factor in the policymaker pie. I better stop there, otherwise I just get carried away. <laughs> it's one of those topics where we do need to uh, get into the weeds. But uh, uh, Prabhu, let me let me swing back to you just real quick on this very, I think, important perspective uh, Prof. Tiki brought up, and that's this misconception on uh, you know promoting promiscuity or the safety angles. It's so true that these are issues that even after a decade yet still persist. It'll be great just to hear your your perspective and perhaps some sound advice for our listeners um, to, to, to try and maybe contextualize that and any, any answers you may sure. have. I, I think with any introduction of a, a, an intervention, a health intervention, just as what you see with HPV, you observe it all over again with COVID vaccines. You know, the, the causal relationship and associations. So, you know, when HPV vaccination was first given, when you give it in such a large scale, I mean, already before any intervention is given, you will have the odd neurological disease, um, allergic reactions. But then when you start giving everyone the vaccine, HPV vaccine, then you the association is turned into a causal relationship. And, and that's the same with what we see in COVID. You know, mm -hmm. I had my COVID jab and my cancer has recurred. I've had mm -hmm. my COVID jab and I've had a stroke or a heart attack. And, and how do we remove these, um, this sort of misunderstanding or myths? Yes, the science is there. We must be open to look at the science because sometimes, sometimes after large randomized control trials are done, you see an effect later on when it's adopted into a policy and population level. So as a scientist, you must still be open to rare side effects. But if the evidence shows that it works, we must also counter the myths. You know, one thing about doctors and scientists, we don't communicate very well. We don't uh, sell facts very well. We are using all this jargon, this scientific language, you know. 
whereas uh, the myth, the people who sell myth or complementary medicine, they really know the right language to use when it comes to talking to the public. So you see the WhatsApp messages that are spread, right? About, oh, I had a, I had a HPV vaccine and I can't walk the next day. And that caused the whole downfall of Japan's vaccination program that time. And years down the line, we show that there's no relationship and yet it was still so slow um, to be taken up. So these are stories. And similarly, similarly, COVID is facing the same situation now. Shown to work, but the myths are really at large. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I wrote a paper last year, um, which in my, in my research showed that uh, one of the biggest sources of uh, media disinformation, uh, I found it unfair to tag it as the uh, uh, sort of the relatives WhatsApp chat in particular, it was more the aunties than the uncles. I have to say uncles are equally many times uh, contributing to it, but <laughs> consider that uh, WhatsApp viral messages have become uh, a key source. And how do you how do you counter that? So I, I think absolutely right. I mean, I think these are also factors that come in. And also, I think to um, uh, I think what 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 Prof Dickey said earlier about this fact that oh, if I'm vaccinated, will I be more promiscuous? I mean, you know, uh, it, it it just when you think it through and you start to sort of peel that back, you're like, no, <laughs> why would I suddenly say I'm going to start engaging in uh, promiscuous behavior because I'm vaccinated. So there are these factors that come into play. And I think um, you both sort of position this exact point that, you know, we've got to find good policy, brave policy that understands these perspectives and these nuances. Let's maybe uh, shift gears to a topic that uh, I think is probably allied to all of this. Now, we've talked about the fact that there are uh, a certain number, 70% that need to be screened using this HPV test. It's minimally invasive. Uh, we would then be close to touching our 2030 goals. Yet at the same time, uh, we find that uh, these, these, are, these are hard to reach numbers. Um, is there an aspect, and I think Prof Tiki touched upon it on logistics and, 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 and resourcing. Um, aside from the sort of clinical data, the efficacy, the safety, the behavioral nuances, is there something in the middle, which is almost this, how resilient or how robust is our logistics, is our resourcing, is our infrastructure that could possibly cope with, let's assume, an average of 70% screening happening? Is that something which comes in the way of things? And I'll open that up to, to anyone who has a, a thought there. So in terms of resources, if you compare the, the old way of taking of doing cervical screening, you need a woman to have a pelvic examination, you need instruments, you need um, cytopathologists to read um, their, their pap smears under microscope, highly, highly um, human resource intense infrastructure must be able to cope with that. Now, when we talk about HPV testing, you're talking about a molecular test, a PCR test. And now it's easier to talk about this because everyone is familiar with a COVID test. So we, we, we did this. I know this is a podcast, but you're talking about a swab, a simple swab that takes a low vaginal swab and you run this on the same machines that run COVID PCR, you do a HPV PCR and the answer comes out as a yes and no. 
this is such a huge paradigm shift and you know what I think, what, what, what the barriers are? I think the healthcare professionals are not ready yet to promote this widely. If I speak to many of my colleagues, including the medical school teaching still, we are still teaching pap smears. Um, we, we're not ready to let go of a, a um, practice that has been there since the beginning of the practice of medicine. And you have to be, you have to be radical to be able to accept that there's a new method now. It can be done large scale. Mm. And, you know, women can do it themselves. You don't even need a doctor to do their HPV test, self-testing for HPV. So big radical ideas, disruptive, transformative, and doctors are very slow to accept change. So I think it will require a bit of time, but we will get there because science has shown that this is such a superior screening method. And in a way, we're saying that the screening, therefore, doesn't have to take up the time, effort, and energy of specialists, but could be done at primary care nurse levels at selves and themselves doing it. Um, do you think, Prof. Tiki, in that context, as uh, Prof. Wu just outlined, I mean, in a, in, a, in a bizarro world sort of way, that there might be resistance from the medical fraternity or policymakers to say, hmm, does that take away from the role and responsibility of the medical community? Almost like, is there, a, is there a chance that this might be seen as taking away rather than alleviation? I, I, I don't really think that that, that is such a, a sort of a, an insurmountable barrier. I think more and more, especially in developing countries, um, the health systems are getting more and more used to what is known as uh, task shifting. Mm -hmm. So those invasive, highly technical procedures that Yinling mentioned before about pap smears, how it has to be done by an obstetrician gynecologist and then qualified pathologist to look at the microscope. Um, I think a lot of that has, as the technology has improved, we are more and more moving towards what is known as point of care kind of diagnostic test. In this case, I guess, you know, point of care at the level, at the level of primary care uh, clinics. And I think people are more and more used to, for example, not necessarily having to have doctors uh, do the necessary collection of the specimen. Uh, in this particular case, I'm pretty sure midwives would be perfectly uh, qualified uh, to do that. Even in many developing countries, what are known as traditional birth attendants. You know, they, they're not qualified midwives in that sense of, of the word. Uh, but I was very impressed with the advance in the technology that Yinling showed us just now. Although I don't know, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not an obstetrician or gynecologist, but I, I would maybe say that collecting a low vaginal swab is probably not as straightforward as collecting a nasal swab for COVID, okay? So there could be still some level of training involved there to make sure that you're co collecting the specimen in the right way. But having said that, assuming that you are able to collect the specimen and better still, if the woman can do it herself, um, the technology around the PCR 
itself. It's just incredible how it has um, sort of um, progressed so much in terms of the cost of the machines to do the PCR, in terms of the portability. There are now you know, battery-driven PCRs that have been tested in the field. Uh, the military, for example, have been doing this for Antrax for many, many years in the US. So I think the parallels in the technology, but you know, uh, getting it adopted at, at, at a certain level, uh, and uh, that is a different challenge. It's, it's, it's not about the scientific challenge here. It's about, once again, about uh, competing priorities. And I'm not sure how much uh, that test actually costs uh, compared to say the, the COVID test. And once again, in terms of the volume, you know, when you increase the volume, I'm sure the cost of those tests will drop dramatically. But given the level of testing coverage at the moment, probably that hasn't happened yet, but I may be wrong. Correct. No, Prof. Diki, you're absolutely right. Um, the, minister, the, the World Health Organization is actually championing this, just like what they've done with TB PCR previously. TB used to be so expensive, TB testing, right, right, and right. when the numbers went up, is is um, the prices came down, and that's exactly the same thing. Um, stakeholders are trying to do with HPV testing. Uh, we we learn from the era of HIV testing and HPV testing, so that's exactly where we are now. Mm. But but let me just add, I think the other thing that uh, you know the HPV advocacy suffers a little bit from. It's probably the classical dilemma. When you're talking about COVID, you're talking about very acute infection, somebody gets sick, somebody can die within a week. You know, here you're talking about preventing a cancer that is, you know, many, many, many years down the road. So that sense of urgency may not be there. I mean, that's, you know, the typical dilemma between acute infectious diseases and chronic disease. Correct. And that's why we have such a huge issue with diabetes and heart disease and cancer, because that, that's what we, when we first started this conversation, how do we move healthcare to prevention? And that's what I shared with Rohit. I, I think it's a behavioral fight. It, it's, a, it's how do we change how people think? Uh, we, we are very last minute, I guess. We just wait until there's a symptom. How do we change our communities to adopt preventive strategies in a manner that's not inconvenient to them, that's within their control um, at an early stage rather than later on? Yeah, but but you mean, I mean, um, I, I think that's fine, but I think there's a bigger underlying problem that has been shown up very clearly during the COVID pandemic, and that is the low level of health literacy okay i'm not talking about science literacy i'm talking health literacy in terms of healthy behaviors amongst the population even amongst educated people okay so uh, you know that's a much more let's say structural problem and uh, you know i don't even mean that we should be uh, improving health literacy at the level of universities i'm talking about secondary school even primary school you know because unless the overall literacy about health is improved in the population, you know, it's going to be an uphill battle. 
or where you go to get health care. If I'm sick, do I go to a private GP? Do I go to a hospital? If I have an abnormal screening test, which hospital do I go to? How do I get to see a specialist? It's that type of basic question that right, perhaps right. we should be teaching in school. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. One aspect that I think you've both been touching upon extremely importantly is the realization that health literacy is paramount before anything will change. Sure. Uh, what's been coming up in more and more conversations is that, well, has uh, technology finally caught up that is more about digital literacy that will enable you to have health literacy? I know that sounds a little convoluted, but to pick up on Prof Wu's uh, example there, that if I have an abnormal result and I want to find out where do I go, who do I go to? Where it's, it's not like it used to be where you just pick up a phone and speak to an operator, right? I mean, now you have to know how to manage apps, the digitization of health systems. Uh, here in Singapore, I know that there's been a great deal of concern that will, uh, particularly a, an aging cohort, be able to manage their disease with all of the e-triage and e-HCRs, et cetera, that will be necessary for you even to make appointments and so on. So there is now, I think, as you both rightly pointed out, uh, and a real convergence of digital and health literacy becoming paramount. One can't happen without the other. Fascinating. I mean, I, I think um, as we're sort of breaking this down, what's becoming clearer, and for the listeners, maybe to remind it again why this is so significant, cervical cancer affects around half a million women, causes a quarter of a million deaths worldwide, and 80% of deaths are occurring in less developed countries. So I think that sort of accentuates why uh, the professors here are particularly passionate and talking about these nuances. What's coming across is that we've got perspectives that are required and necessary from you know, the digitization, the health literacy, uh, the value that uh, 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 behavioral science can certainly play. Um, there's one aspect that I think in the time we have to touch upon, and we mentioned this in our first episode, is political will uh, and brave policy linked with regulatory presence. Um, maybe I'll just sort of throw this to um, uh, uh, Prof Tiki and Prof Wu, that wh where do we sit right now in our region or in our places that uh, the, the, the right regulatory uh, presence, and by that insurance payers, their uh, recognition of their role, uh, the political will that this has to come together, are these two almost like handshaking to come together and can much be achieved with the right balance there? Yeah, obviously, I think it's, it's the right balance. Uh, uh, regulations, um, political will, which all links to accessibility. Okay, how do you make the vaccine and the testing, for example, much more accessible, much more affordable to those who need it the most? And as we have already said, it's not about just convincing policymakers about the fact that the evidence is beyond uh, doubt that it has great benefits, but there is the need, not just political will and commitment, but to put your money where your mouth is, you know, um, amongst all these other competing priorities, you know, political exigencies, uh, uh, pressure groups, uh, the issue of uh, lobbying uh, groups, in some cases, the power of religious leaders, Okay, so the I, I don't envy the policymaker in in a sense, you know, and um, uh, let me just end by um, a quote that I use a lot in my classes. Okay, and this comes from Sir Michael Marmot, 
who was the chair of the WHO Commission on the Social Determinants of Health. And this is what he said about policymakers, the dilemma that faces them. Science does not engage with blank minds that get made up as a result. Science engages with busy minds that have definite views on how things are and how things should be. You know, you, I sympathize with policymakers, you know, and if the next election is six months away, he's not gonna make a decision that's gonna jeopardize that. So anyway, I'll stop there. So that's the dilemma of the policymaker, you know. Absolutely. Prof, uh, what would be your thoughts to that? Likewise, I, I don't, I don't uh, envy policymakers. Being a scientist is much easier. Being a doctor <laughs> is much easier. But, but this is it, right? We, we need to engage with them. We need to, we need to educate them and update them. So let, let's use an example here um, in cervical cancer screening. I, I think I spoke about this. So where policy and science meet. So we, we spoke to some insurers, the major insurers in Malaysia, and their policy is still to classify HPV as a sexually transmitted disease, oh which means that you cannot compensate someone or ah. reimburse someone financially if they go for a screening test, which is a proactive right, behavior. Right and something abnormal is found and they're treated for it at an early level. So by right, your policy right, should be yeah. rewarding them, mm. not giving them punitive exactly. <laughs> measures whereby you say, oh, you've got a sexually transmitted disease and therefore I will not pay for your reimbursement. Wow. Yeah, 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 now, yeah. so this is where the doctor and the scientist needs to tell the policymakers, look, HPV infection is very common. It's not a disease is when our immune system is low that someone will have persistent infection and then there may be changes in the cervix. And therefore, a person who screens and gets treated early, they will save you so much more money if they are found to have cervical cancer. And that's where these conversations need to happen. Yeah. Yeah, Just and, as an and, example. And, yeah. and that's a wonderful example. And for policymakers, that cost-benefit argument is sometimes the most powerful. If you tell a policymaker that by giving the vaccine, by giving the test, you avoid, I don't know, 8,000 cases of cervical cancer 10 years down the line, you will save $60 million. That's the kind of argument that usually works best. And we have learned this from HIV as well, because now patients with HIV live a normal age. And exactly. they used to be, remove from policies if they have such a test. No, right, you right. shouldn't. Yeah, you should yeah. have the diagnosis early. I take the treatment for it and I live a long, normal, healthy life. Right, you right, don't right, penalize right, right, them right. from having the test. Yeah, and yeah, these, yeah. these are examples that we, we, we yeah. need to engage with policymakers. Right, right. You should actually provide incentives for them. Correct. A... Correct. <laughs> Incentivize preventive measures that are taken right, right, by right. individuals right, right right absolutely imagine that imagine the time when we have policy that could actually incentivize for the i guess the the courage and the ability to say i need to look after my health i'm gonna right, right, do something right. about it oops things didn't go so well in my test result but i'm gonna have the support and the nurturing to see me through this 
um, from from a from a from a from an infrastructural point of view and from a support point of view? Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be a brilliant place to work? I, I think I was giving the example last time to Prof Wu that there was a time when uh, my mom came to me and she had something on her lips and I said, "What's that?" And she said, "It's herpes." And I said, "Herpes." only to realize that herpes is nothing. It's just a thing that happens to everybody. So the normalization of uh, terms, uh, HIV, the normalization, the necessary normalization of certain things, the HPV normalization, uh, bringing that into, I guess, more of an acceptable uh, mainstream. I, I think this is where we've been sort of coming to. This has been an absolutely riveting uh, time. Um, and this is exactly why we needed to break these discussions into three episodes, and I'm sure even that would never be enough. Uh, but at the same time, uh, at least we have now begun to uh, make some momentum, I must say. And I think uh, if I may want to ask uh, both of you, if there's any last kind of uh, statements or words as we sort of proceed into our next episode soon, um, what would you want to leave our listeners behind with? Uh, perhaps Prof Hu, I can start with you and then on to Prof Dickey. I think I, I, I've always believed we have to start the conversations. Scientists, doctors have to start having conversations with economists, with actuaries, with politicians. We don't generally meet, you know. Doctors always meet with doctors. Financial people meet with financial people. And that's where I think to, to really make changes that are disruptive and transformative we do need to have these conversations going. Prof. Mm. Uh, let me just finish on what I think is probably the biggest threat to you know, the post-pandemic era after what we have seen. And that is without a doubt, um, the dangers of misinformation and fake news you know, transmitted through uh, social media. And um, it, it's a case where as you mentioned yourself and Yinling mentioned that the, the people who promote these falsehoods are much more effective in using these uh, technologies than those of us who try to defend the truth. Okay, so uh, that, that's the big challenge, I believe, technologically. And let me end, end by quoting uh, Yuval Harari, the author of Homo sapiens. He said, we humans know more truths than any other species on earth, yet we believe the most falsehoods. Mm. So that's our challenge. Absolutely. That's a great way to punctuate this session. Um, I, I, I want to thank uh, Prof. Dickey, Prof. Wu so much for the time and taking this time out of the busy schedules to continue this dialogue. Um, our next episode is actually going to be the culmination of this of this time together, we've we've called it meeting at the middle, finding new ground, okay. uh, and then hopefully we'll find uh, some resolution to a lot of the uh, information and necessary discussion we've had right now. I want to thank our listeners uh, for following us, for listening to us, and for the feedback that you've been giving in as well. Uh, for more information, you can always go to www.thevoicesprojectasia.org. Uh, um, and again, as always, uh, what we're doing here is just trying to make a difference. It just takes one step at a time. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Prof. Thank, uh, thank you, Prof. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rohit. Thank you very much. <laughs>